Springs. It's time for our regularly scheduled conversation with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Not in East Africa, though. Indeed. And I, I assume that when uh, examining a person uh, in court, if that person's account of events continually changes, it's not always a helpful state of affairs. That, that's usually a uh, poor sign if you're trying to assess somebody's credibility. What is on the agenda for you and I today? Well, the uh, first case on the agenda involves uh, a class action uh, that is just settled against Google. Uh, and the particular fact pattern of it uh, involved uh, Canadian uh, customers who uh, had Android phones, which they used in 2017. Um, and I must say, as I read this uh, judgment, which or this decision dealing with the settlement agreement, uh, I was reminded of comments that uh, Tim Cook, the uh, CEO of Apple, made a number of years ago about the uh, Google and Android operating system. And he said, essentially, you're not the customer, you're the product. <laughs> and the, the point was that when you receive uh, an Android phone, you're not paying for the operating system. It's being provided gratuitously by Google. Yes. Uh, and that comment by Tim Cook was, I think, to make the point that they're not, Google that is, is not producing the operating system out of the goodness of their heart to help your uh, communication efforts. Uh, they're doing it because they can make money doing it in the form of selling uh, advertising. Uh, that's how they make money. Yes. So that's the point. You're the product, right? You're not the uh, you're not the customer paying for it. Uh, they're selling you and access to you. And so this case from 2017 uh, involved data collection on Android phones, uh, and the uh, claim was uh, based on it was a class action claim that was certain, that was in British Columbia and. Uh, corresponding claims in Ontario and Quebec. It covered all of Canada. Uh, the claim was founded on um, the fact that at that time, uh, Android phones were uh, recording and in some circumstances storing and uploading uh, data about the cell phone towers that they were connected to. Uh, and so uh, by use of that data, you'd be able to track where did that phone go uh, and if you connect it up with other information, you may also be able to say, you know, there's where so-and-so the phone user went. Yes. So you're being tracked by your phone. That might have some commercial benefit if you were trying to sell, you know, advertising to people that go to certain places or do certain things. Indeed. Um, and so this was a class action premised on a breach of privacy. Uh, the argument was that that was non-consensual. They were transmitting and collecting this uh, data um, for their commercial purposes. So that precipitated this class action. And what just occurred this week uh, was uh, approval from the court in British Columbia to settle that class action. And the way that works is that when you have a class action, um, you need to get approval from the court before the, uh, a proposed settlement agreement can be implemented. The idea is that the court needs to make sure that the settlement agreement is in the best interest of the class members, the people that owned Android phones in 2017. Yes. And so the court of this case, of this decision that just came out, uh, is analyzing the nature of the claim, the potential privacy implications, you know, how much has been, uh, you know, were other cases settled for. Uh, and here, ultimately, the court approved the uh, settlement agreement 
which was in the amount of $1 million, which is hardly going to bring Google to its knees. No, uh, no, it won't. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not having that effect. Uh, interestingly, in the, reading the decision, a couple of things stood out to me. One was the fact that Google sought and obtained a sealing order over sensitive information in the court file, so it might leave you scratching your head about what other sensitive information uh, might have wound up in the uh, court file in the course of this litigation. Um, another thing which is worth noting here, people should be aware of, is that when somebody acts as the representative plaintiff, and here there were a couple of them, they wind up having various responsibilities during the course of the litigation, reviewing pleadings, going over documents, showing up at um, settlement discussions, this kind of thing. And in this case, as does happen occasionally, there are honoraria uh, that sort of an additional payment made to people who have agreed to act as the representative plaintiffs. And here, one of the individuals was the court described as extremely involved, reviewing documents, providing technical expertise, attending mediation in person. That fellow wound up with a $2,000 honoraria, uh, and another person who was less involved wound up with $500. Um, and so the upshot of all of this is uh, if you had a cell phone in 2017, an Android one, you may wind up with a few cents ultimately because what will happen is the million dollars will wind up getting divvied up in some uh, fashion. Uh, they apparently uh, ran some advertising in July of 2020, uh, I guess asking people to sign up if they were a potential class member. Um, and I must say, I also smiled as I read that, thinking, you know, rather than running a, an ad in the newspaper to try to figure out who had an Android phone in 2017, it seems to me there's one one company that might have a very, very good idea of who owned them and perhaps, in fact, where they are. That might be Google. <laughs> so maybe rather than a, an ad in the newspaper, perhaps the court should have required Google to make use of some of the collected information they have, perhaps some of the information stored in the sensitive information in the court file, to help out with the distribution of the $1 million. I find that funny that perhaps the most sophisticated and powerful advertising medium to ever exist in the history of our species was uh, reliant on traditional print media to get information to affected persons. Yeah, you, you think there might be a more efficient way. So I think really the takeaway for people should be Think very carefully about these kind of products and really what the nature of your relationship is and what's going on, uh, because uh, it may well be that even if this particular type of data collection, they say that if they stop doing it uh, in 2017, isn't going on, uh, it, uh, would cert it certainly causes uh, one to have a concern about, you know, just how much uh, are they doing to preserve people's uh, privacy uh, and what else is going on in 2021. So don't quit your day job over the uh, Google settlement, uh, but uh, maybe uh, think carefully about uh, what you're using uh, and what information about you uh, may be getting collected. And the old joke is that if you ever any, have any feedback that you want to submit to Google and ensure that it is seen, you just type it into your search bar. Yeah, that's right. Or, or, or just see it around your phone. Hey, hey Google, what are the secret documents? See what happens. Uh, all right. Uh, let, let's take our first break here at CFAX 1070. We'll continue on Legally Speaking here at CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers right after this.
We continue with Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, though, with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we better understand the latest current affairs in the legal world, including how can manslaughter, Michael, result from murder and how does it relate to Section 232 of the Criminal Code? Yes, indeed. Uh, so uh, this is a, a good question and, and one which has had just recent uh, application uh, on Vancouver Island as a result of a uh, killing of a drug dealer uh, up in Nanaimo. And so a starting point would be to describe, you know, how do we define murder and manslaughter in the criminal code? Yeah. Essentially what we do is we say this, Section 222. We say when a person, a person commits homicide, when they directly or indirectly by any means cause the death of a human being, and then it says homicide can be culpable or not culpable. If it's not culpable, it's not an offense. If it's culpable homicide, it can be either murder manslaughter, or the little used infanticide. Um, and so uh, that calls the question, well, what are some of these things that are the culpable homicide that are not murder? Yes. Uh, the last one that I mentioned there, infanticide, is a, a rarely used one now, but I'll tell you what that is by way of interest. Infanticide is this. Infanticide is a female person commits infanticide, so it has to be a woman. Interesting. When, uh, when by a willful act or omission, she causes the death of her newly born child. Hmm. If at the time of the act or omission, she is not fully recovered from the effects of giving birth to the child, and by reason thereof, or of the effects of lactation, consequent on the birth of the child, her mind is then disturbed. <laughs> so we still have that. This sounds like quite an arcane uh, piece of statute. It is. It is still, though, occasionally used. Huh. So, culpable homicide could be infanticide, murder, or manslaughter. Now, murder uh, will involve the intentional killing of somebody, right? Yes. Culpable, where there isn't any other, where there isn't a defense to it. But how do you get, when you have, for example, this case that I mentioned at the outset, uh, there was a recent decision uh, by uh, Judge Justice Baird in Nanaimo, uh, who was dealing with uh, a charge of murder, uh, where there was a, uh, a homeless uh, drug addict uh, beat to death, a terrible-sounding fellow, uh, who was a, a Mr. Sitar, uh, who was a drug dealer uh, in Nanaimo. And I'll tell you the facts of the case, and then that'll bring us to what manslaughter is and how that uh, particular beating was manslaughter and not murder. Hmm. And so the facts of the case the judge was dealing with here involved this uh, drug dealer uh, who the judge described as a prolific thief, property fencer, and drug dealer um, who uh, was described by the judge as selfish, vindictive, doing things like playing satanic heavy metal music and ear-splitting volumes in his apartment, uh, you know, selling drugs and fencing stolen property there. Uh, and the accused in the case was a man described as somebody who was uh, addicted to heroin and methamphetamine who was living in a shanty uh, in the backyard near the deceased's apartment building. Uh, and there was a, uh, according to the judge, a long-standing uh, relationship here where the deceased drug dealer the judge described as the alpha dog who would uh, do things including physically beating and assaulting the drug addict, abusing him, uh, he described that as the judge described uh, in the past, the deceased drug dealer uh, involving himself in things like nasty, gratuitous, excessive, and unprovoked assaults on mm. the drug dealer or drug addict. Yes. 
Uh, and then on the date in question, uh, the drug addict had paid the drug dealer $80 for heroin, came to get it, uh, found that the drug dealer had used the heroin himself. The drug dealer then uh, demanded that the drug addict go and re-steal a motorcycle that had previously been stolen and returned by the police. And if the drug dealer did not, or drug addict did not do that, the drug dealer was going to shoot uh, the drug addict's girlfriend. And he said that while brandishing a gun. That's awful. Uh, and so in that context, without having planned to do so, the drug addict snapped, picked up a baseball bat in the apartment, uh, and killed the drug dealer with it, hitting him over the head. And so that's the fact pattern. And so that brings us to, well, is that murder? <laughs> you, you sure intended to kill the guy, it looks like, or that would have been the reasonably foreseeable consequence of clubbing somebody on the head with a, a baseball bat Indeed. more than once. So how would that be manslaughter and not murder? And so that brings us to how you can turn what would otherwise be uh, murder uh, into a manslaughter. Uh, and that involves this concept. It involves uh, where there's a culpable homicide, uh, where um, there, the person did so in the heat of passion caused by a sudden provocation. That's the basic concept of it. Yes. Um, and there has been some controversy over how exactly uh, that is to be defined. The For a very long period of time, that was defined in Canada as a, quote, a wrongful act or insult that is of such a nature and to be sufficient to deprive an ordinary person of self-control. Uh, now, that actually changed a few years ago, and it changed as a result uh, of an act called the Barbaric Cultural Practices Act. Yes, I remember it. It was introduced in 2015. Uh, and in 2015, that act was introduced, and it changed that definition of manslaughter to introduce the concept that the act or insult had to be something uh, which could produce, which would be criminal, because it would have to produce the prospect of a uh, jail sentence if somebody had carried out the, the activity. Yes. Now, the reason for that change in 2015, and it probably is... Uh, hinted at by the name of that act, was to remove manslaughter from as a partial defense to honor killings. Yes. The concern was you didn't want uh, a husband to be able to say, look, my wife did something, you know, in the course of, a, you know, we were married in an arranged marriage, something of that sort. You know, my honor was so insulted I had to murder her. Right? Yes, yes. And so that was the reason for the change. But... Um, unfortunately, uh, it may not have had that desired effect. Uh, and in fact, the uh, unforeseen consequence of that uh, change that was made was addressed by a, a BC Supreme Court judge in 2019. Uh, and the judge in that case uh, was sort of looking at why that change was made, but then the unintended consequences that can flow from requiring the uh, wrongful act or insult to also be a criminal offense. And the judge looked at some um, hypothetical examples of how that change might have the opposite effect from what was intended. And the judge looked at, for example, this was one of the uh, fact patterns the judge considered. He said, you know, what if you had, for example, a, a woman who had been physically and psychologically abused for many years by her husband, and then one day, while she's making dinner, 
Uh, he ridicules and taunts her and uses slurs he know, knows will be particularly devastating to her, and she on the sudden stabs him and he dies. Yes. Right? And so in that example, uh, you might, under the previous definition, which involved a wrongful act or insult of such a nature to be sufficient to deprive an ordinary person of self-control, you might imagine how it, a jury might accept that, you know, after years of torment, and when somebody does something particular, does or says something particularly devastating and insulting, and somebody responds on the quick like that, um, that, you know, perhaps that would fit the definition. But under the change, that abused woman would not have any self, not have any uh, defense uh, to the charge because mm. the insulting thing said by her husband would not be a crime. No. They were just insulting. Uh, and the judge gave other examples of, for example, Let's say you had somebody whose uh, you know family members had been uh, abused or uh, uh, killed for you know uh, in the past, uh, and then, for example, he gave the example of a neo-Nazi sympathizer taunts the individual uh, with you know heinous slurs but not threats, and the person responds by hitting the <laughs> neo-Nazi on the head and they die. Right. Mm, yes. Well, be another example. Look, what was said doesn't amount to a crime. You weren't saying I'm going to kill you. You were just saying tremendously insulting things that could cause somebody to respond. Now, what would the standard of evidence, the standard of proof, be on establishing that the provocation was in fact criminal? Because that itself has a high standard. You're quite right, and that would ordinarily be a question for. I mean, a judge would give instructions to a jury about that, right? Mm. But. The, the language used there, and even the previous language, used the language of deprive an ordinary person of self-control. Mm. And so there would be some assessment as to whether, not whether you're just a particular hothead, but whether an ordinary person, if subject to whatever the behavior might be, so for example, the uh, you know somebody in the position of this uh, drug addict, uh, who has been, you know, tormented by the drug dealer, yeah. uh, who then has him steal the drugs that he's paid for, tell him to go and commit another uh, crime or he would shoot his girlfriend, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you, you would look at that and say, look, could, could that deprive an ordinary person of self-control? And the judge in that case from Nanaimo said, yes, it could, right? Uh, and one of the reasons why all of this is important um, is that, when in Canada we did away with the uh, death penalty in 1976, part of that, the compromise to get rid of that, was to have mandatory life sentences uh, for people convicted of murder. That yes. was alternative to um, hanging people. Uh, and so manslaughter doesn't have a mandatory minimum life sentence. So it allows some flexibility in terms of what punishment would be imposed. And so that's why it matters when you're dealing with, and I think these examples are examples of things where there's certainly culpability there. And for example, the judge in the case from Nanaimo described what the drug addict did as inappropriate and disproportionate, but understandable, right? Yes. And the concept would be, look, there's just a diminished degree of moral culpability for the person who's subject to, you know, that kind of uh, circumstance who then sort of acts without thinking and causes a death. And really the issue here is that we have this mandatory minimum life sentence for murder. And while a life sentence for murder might in many cases be the appropriate sentence, life is complicated. 
and you wind up with circumstances like um, everyone will, I think, recall Mr. Latimer, the man who killed his severely disabled daughter who was in constant pain. Yes. He was sentenced to life in prison, right? Uh, or, you know, you might imagine the abused woman who uh, finally acts against her husband. Yes. Um, and when you consider those kinds of um, fact patterns, I think many people would say, well, perhaps we don't need to put that person in prison for life. No. Perhaps something less than that would be an appropriate punishment. And so really what this concept of manslaughter uh, does is it provides a sort of safety valve to deal with one circumstance in which there could be much lower moral culpability for causing a death. And if we don't want to call it manslaughter, another approach to all of this would be to allow judges some discretion in terms of what sentence they would impose in the event of a conviction for murder. Indeed. And that would allow that would avoid putting abused women uh, and people engaged in things like circumstances like that in prison for the rest of their life when that would not be um, necessarily a fair outcome. Indeed. So that's the, that's the history of it, and, and that's what happened in Nanaimo. Legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour, every Thursday here on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, thank you as always for the benefit of your knowledge and insight on these matters. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Have a great day. Bye now. Here we go, folks. That is the way the law works with respect to that. Imagine that, though. That uh, addicted uh, man, drug dealer, saying, go steal that motorcycle again or I'm going to kill your girlfriend. Man's afflicted by um, intoxication, multiple substances, snaps, kills the man. Is that murder? Is that manslaughter? Well, that is how our justice system deals with those matters. And now you and I, hopefully, understand it more deeply than we did before.